Good morning, everybody. Awesome. Thank you for that. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see all of your beautiful and handsome faces here at Echo Community Church, where we are all about being and making disciples of Jesus. I can see that most of you have survived the storm unscathed, which is good. Uh, our house did not. We lost power for quite some time, and our road is still destroyed, but it's okay. Hopefully, the trees will be moved shortly, and we will resume normal life. Um, it was a, quite a surprise coming back from Nicaragua to like a literal windstorm going on, so that was fun. Uh, me and Pastor Phil, actually, we just got back uh, on Saturday at about 2 a.m., so we are fresh off the press of coming back from Nicaragua, which is a beautiful country. Um, we have so many stories, so if you guys want to talk to us about our experience there, please ask either myself or Pastor Phil, because we, we would love to share that with you. Just to give you a small highlight before we jump in, uh, we were in the city of Managua for about three days, um, give or take, and we saw tons of amazing people. We met with pastors Nathan and Christine there. We got to see the Bible college that was there. We got to see some of the different things that are going on in Nicaragua. Just to give you some context for the country itself, it's the average household income per month for a family is about $200. And that's for, that's supposed to cover everything. So if that doesn't give you some context about the country, um, there's, there's people living on very little. Um, and we look forward to being able to partner with not just the churches there, but the Bible College to prepare ministers to plant churches there, um, to provide churches with resources to continue their ministry. Really cool exp um, experiences with pastors there, with people who traveled with us. So we would love to talk to you more about that. And I know Pastor Phil is going to have more information for you about that trip and about how we're going to participate in helping with um, Nicaragua and the churches that are there. So really cool stuff. But in today's service, we are going, and yeah, there's Pastor Phil. He took some pictures for us. Um, and I took some pictures too. We also, side note, these pictures are not up there. But on the last day, we also got to see a volcano, which was crazy. So if you ever go to Nicaragua, Messiah National Park, there's a volcano there. Definitely check that out, okay? Um, but really awesome country, really amazing time that we had with the pastors and people there. Um, but today's service, we're going to focus on Jesus because he is worthy. He is amazing. I'm looking forward to spending some time with him and with you. So why don't we jump right into it? If you're willing and able, will you stand with me this morning? Keith and the team. We're about to lead us in a few songs here today, but let's press into Jesus. There are people all across the world who are worshiping Jesus today, even in this very moment. And we're going to participate with them because Jesus is worthy of our worship. Keith and the team, why don't you take it away? your unfailing love your cross has spoken mercy over me no eye has seen no ear has heard no heart could fully know how glorious how beautiful you are sing it with me
I will praise you, I'll sing and not be silent. 
praise you this morning. We give thanks to you. You and you alone are worthy of our praise. You are a good God. We bless your name this morning. You are not a God created by human hands. You are not a God dependent on any mortal man. You are not a God in need of anything we can give by your plan. That's just the way it is. You are not a God
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for the amazing stories that you've always provided us. One thing that I do love is a good story. I love to tell stories. I love to hear stories. And one thing that we're blessed in this church is with a lot of people are good storytellers. Like, um, Paul Maldives tells good stories. Anyone that has the last name Burke, like both Johns, Paul, JP. Um, I was talking, like even Rajiv now is taking the bulk, um, the Burke's DNA, and it has a good story. I love telling stories. And those are the books that I also love to read. Like I love reading a good book where someone is telling a story about them. And I was reading a book about a fellow um, endurance athlete like myself that he was some of you are, are laughing, but like, come on, by faith, by faith. Um, uh, so this is a man that is an ultra marathon runner. He was a former Navy SEAL. He runs with like broken bones. And he's like, he's a man's man. And I was reading this book and he was saying that the toughest thing that he's ever done was going through the Army Ranger School. Now, I was like, wait, wait, wait a second, because one of my good friends, graduated from the Army Ranger School. And I'm like, no, you're not. Like, my friend is not as tough as you, and he graduated. So I was thinking, like, there could only be two things. Either you're a little bit more weaker than what you're letting us to believe, or my friend is tougher than what he's letting us to be. And that's what I wanted to believe, right? So I walked over to my friend, and I'm like, hey, I was reading this book about this really tough guy, and he said that he struggled through ranger school and he's a navy seal like he went through hell week ranger school is not as tough because you graduated from ranger school and my friend looks at me and he's like 
No, no, no. It is tough. And right there, I'm looking for a good story. I tell my friend, tell me how. What I was waiting for is that he's going to say, like, man, I was thirsty and I drank my own sweat. I One time I had to climb a tree and stay there for 12 hours. I wanted a good story from my friend. And he looked at me and said, like, well, I graduated by the grace of God. And that bothered me. I'm like, no, I want a story. I want a good army military story. He's like, it was the grace of God. And I'm like, well, well, you couldn't go no more. What did you do? When did you drink your own blood? And he's like, it was the grace of God. And that just resonated with me. Because sometimes we're going through difficult situations that we think that we could go by our own strength. And we don't rely on the grace of God. There's um, a verse in the Bible in 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul is telling us that he prayed to God and said, hey, please take this away from me. And God said, my grace is sufficient. And I love the way that the Spanish translation phrases. It says, my power is perfected in your weakness. I don't know what you're going through this morning. But what I could tell you is that God's grace is enough. Sometimes we're dealing with troubles, with family issues that we want to resolve by our own strength. But I'll tell you this morning that God's grace is enough. I don't know what you're going through. But just know that God's power is perfected in your weakness. Maybe it's time for you to let go. Maybe it's time for you to rest. Maybe it's time for you to understand that God's grace is enough. You must be tired, but God's grace is enough. You could be desperate, but God's grace is enough. Let's just pray this morning so that we could learn to let go, that we could learn to trust God's grace in the middle of our troubling time, in the middle of our, of our desperation. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you understanding that we're walking maybe through some troubled waters, God. Lord, that we might be desperate, but it's time for us to understand that your grace is enough. That your power is stronger in our weakness. Lord, that me, that we might be able to understand that it's time to let go. It's time to rest and understand that you are our gentle father. That you take care of us, Lord. That you are a loving God. Help us let go. Help us trust in you. Lord, may from this prayer, may we share the testimony that came after we surrender to you and we rely on your grace. Lord, that is not a magical or powerful story of how we did this or we did that. That we could only say it was God's grace. We pray this in the name of your son. Well, Echo, we're going to do two things at one. Um, we 
going to dismiss the guys to go to Club 58. If you're in 5th to 8th grade, go with that handsome pastor that we have there, Pastor Sag. And for the rest of us, why don't you turn around and greet your neighbor? Yeah, that's nice. The first service, it was an arpeggio, and then that was a, a that. Yes, the technical term, yes. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to, welcome to Echo Community Church. My name is James Yike. I serve as Echo's discipleship pastor. Um, got some uh, exciting news to share with you today and uh, to celebrate a couple young men at uh, Echo Community Church. On Wednesday nights at 7 p.m., we have what we call our family night. We have a Bible study in here, and we have two ministries, um, one for girls and one for boys over in the kids' wing. Girls, the girls' ministry is called Girls' Ministries. It's very appropriate. And uh, the, uh, the boys' ministry is called Royal Rangers. Royal Rangers, uh, if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I was not originally familiar with Royal Rangers until about 15 years ago. Um, I grew up in the Boy Scouts. And uh, so Royal Rangers is similar to the Boy Scout program. You know, you learn life skills and outdoor skills and that kind of stuff. Um, but there's a huge emphasis on discipleship, on teaching young men about the Bible, about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, how to be, right, how to be made right with God and how to grow in your relationship with him. It's an awesome, awesome program. And uh, we, uh, this weekend, actually some of our Rangers right now are at the campsite, uh, as I understand it where they have what they call their powwow, which is when all the different outposts, ranger outposts in our area get together, they spend time together, they have some worship together, and then they also compete to demonstrate the skills that they have been learning. And a lot, some of our rangers actually brought home some awards that we wanted to, uh, to share with you and honor them this morning. So we have, uh, we have three young men we have, uh, first of all, we have, and I wrote it on my paper so I get it right, uh, Chase Nower, eldest son of, of Pastor Phil Nower. He won third place in rope craft, which is knots and things like that. Yep. We have uh, Ben Munoz, who won second place in Bible and ranger knowledge, which is awesome. 
And then we also have Mr. John Perry Burke. Um, you might remember John Perry. I, I usually call him Perry. I don't know why I'm calling him John, but anyway. Perry was baptized this last January at our baptism ceremony, so he may look familiar to many of you. He won first place in Bible and Ranger knowledge, which is absolutely awesome. So they're at the campsite right now. They're getting packed up, and they'll be coming back here and land around 1230, but we wanted to honor them and, uh, you know, celebrate their accomplishments and also just, you know, to remind all of you that these pro we have these programs Wednesday night, 7 to 8.30. If you have kids, bring them. Um, if you don't have kids, bring yourself. We have an awesome Bible study. We're digging into 2 Corinthians right now. Um, it's just it's another opportunity in the middle of your week to, to get together, to grow in Christ. And uh, it's a fantastic opportunity. Both Girls Ministries and Royal Rangers are awesome programs to help your kids grow. So you're more than welcome to come and join us Wednesday night, 7 p.m. right here at the Ministry Center. So again, congratulations to all of our Rangers, and we look forward to getting some good stories from them when they come back. All right, today we're going to continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount by looking at chapter 5, verses 17 through 30. And uh, so while you're pulling your, your Bible out or getting it up on your phone, I have a question for you, and you are allowed to participate vocally, okay? Here's a question. Have you ever misunderstood something? Okay. A lot of people maybe misunderstand whether they misunderstood something or not, but I heard some very firm yeses over here. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in the camp. I'm in the camp over there. Um, many of us have misunderstandings. Um, and uh, one of the ones that, that I learned, actually, when I first got married, I found out I have a really great ability that I didn't know that I had before I got married. Um, I learned in the first year or two of my marriage that I had this innate ability that I had never trained, this innate ability to just misunderstand most of what my wife was telling me. I didn't develop it. It just happened. I can honestly say uh, this August we'll be married for 10 years, and I can honestly say that in the 10 years, I have grown in my ability to continue to misunderstand the things that my wife says. Uh, one, one incident jumps to mind that's humorous now. And uh, this is maybe the first year or two of our marriage. Chelsea used to work for a company that took school photos. And so they would send her, I think it was anywhere within a three-hour radius of, of Baltimore City. So she might be northern Virginia, southern Pennsylvania. She would have to drive all over the place. One particular week, it had been a lot of these really long days and nights where she would leave early. She would get home late. And um, our, our floor had not been vacuumed for a while because I hate vacuuming. Um, it's, it's horrible. I don't even have time to go into the reasons why I hate vacuuming, but like three of you are with me today, and I appreciate that. I wasn't going to do the vacuuming because I don't like it, and Chelsea wasn't there, and she loves to vacuum, so I, you know, that was a good, good thing we got married, but <laughs> winning points with my wife, everybody. Um, but uh, she didn't have time to vacuum, so she came to me that morning before she left, and she said, the floor hasn't been vacuumed in a while. You can do it if you want to. Okay. First service, all the husbands were like, oh. And this service, all the wives are like, oh, because you guys know. Um, 
So I thought if you want to meant if you want to. Thank you. Yes. I assumed that meant it was optional. What I found out was when I didn't do it, I quickly learned that I had a misunderstanding. What if you want to actually meant you love me, therefore you want to and you will. And I fell a little bit short of that, uh, of that standard. Thankfully, uh, we're still together uh, almost 10 years. And like I said, I, I don't know. Sometimes I've still, I, I understand her a little bit better. But, you know, misunderstandings are fun. In retrospect, this one is fun to laugh about. But uh, some misunderstandings, not so much. You ever had a misunderstanding in a relationship? Some uh, expectations maybe that weren't the same and it, it caused some heartburn. Maybe you've had a misunderstanding at your job. Um, I have a friend who was hired to do one thing specifically, and he got there and didn't end up doing that thing for like a year, so it caused a whole lot of, a lot of heartburn, a lot of problems. It was a misunderstanding. One thing you don't want to misunderstand are, are things in the Bible, theological misunderstandings. And there's one in particular that you do not want to get wrong. That is how you enter the kingdom of heaven, how you get right with God. You do not want to get that wrong. You want to know exactly what it takes to be made right with God, to be saved. Thankfully, we have Jesus, who is teaching the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew chapter 5, and he tells us what God's kingdom is like, because we don't understand it. So he tells us what the kingdom is like. He tells us what citizens in the kingdom are like, who they are, what they do, what they think like. And he even lays out the citizenship process, how to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the section that we're going to get into today, it's going to take us a couple weeks to get through. Um, it's uh, known in, I guess, scholarly circles as the six antitheses. Have you ever heard that before? Okay, just me. There are, there are basically six statements that Jesus is going to correct. And um, so he's going to correct some misunderstandings here in Matthew chapter 5. Because he, he wants us to understand what his kingdom's like. He doesn't want us to get that wrong. He wants us to know what he's all about so we can be more like him. So he, he just tells us here in Matthew chapter 5. Um, but I have to be clear about what Jesus is correcting here on the front end. Because if you just look at it at a glance, it might seem like Jesus is correcting something that he would not correct. Here's what I mean. Um, listen to verse 21. And then I'm going to ask you if you've heard this before, okay? You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. You ever heard anything like that before? Uh, throw it out. Where is that in the Bible? Yeah, one of the Ten Commandments. Anybody want to guess what number? Number six. Somebody over there said six. Yeah. Yeah, commandment number six. Thou shalt not murder, if you go with the King James translation. So, okay. Then verse 27 Jesus says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Okay, yeah, we've heard that too. That's commandment number seven. Jesus must be talking about the Old Testament law. Cool, he talks about that all the time. But watch what he does. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, and then he says some other things, which is a problem for us if Jesus is actually correcting the law. Um, let me ask you this. Is the law, uh, can the law be corrected that God made? No. The Bible says the law is perfect, 
meaning nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken away. It is perfect. It needs no altering. So is Jesus trying to alter the law? Is he trying to add something to the law? Is he adding extra rules? And if you follow the rules, well, now you're fit for the kingdom of heaven. No, that's not what he's doing. So what is he doing? Um, I have a whole lot of homework on this to get me to the point where I can responsibly say that Jesus is not correcting the Old Testament law, and I don't have time to go into all of it this morning, so check your study guide. You can scan um, the you scan the QR code and get access to that if you would like. A bunch of extra homework and stuff that I did to get to some of the conclusions that I'm going to draw out today, so if you would like that, uh, you can just scan that, and that's available to you. So if you want the homework on, on uh, how we know Jesus is not just going after the Old Testament, it's in your study guide. But really, if Jesus is trying to correct the Old Testament, either the law is not perfect, which the Bible says it is, which means the Bible's wrong, or Jesus is not perfect. And both, uh, either the law being not perfect or Jesus not being perfect have catastrophic consequences for Christianity. So is that what Jesus is doing? No. How do we know? Go back to verse 17. We covered 17 through 20 last week but it acts also as an introduction to this next section. So we're going to cover it again today really quick. So how do we know he's not talking about the law? Verse 17, Jesus says, don't misunderstand why I have come. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18 he says, I tell you the truth, or for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So is Jesus correcting Old Testament? No. He says, I have not come to abolish the law. I haven't come to destroy it, change it, add to it. It's already perfect. What I've come to do is fulfill the law. I'm going to live the law perfectly. I'm going to show you what somebody who lives the law perfectly really looks like. You're going to see that in my example. I'm not going to change it. In fact, no part of this law is going to change. It's not going to go away until every part of its purpose has been accomplished. So Jesus, right up front, is saying, I, I know it sounds like I might be correcting the law, but I'm not. Don't misunderstand why I've come. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you kind of think about the people who are in the crowd at this point. You have uh, Jesus' disciples and the crowd that is gathering around him while he's teaching, probably some rabbis and Pharisees and teachers of the law and things like that there. And when they hear that, they're like, hey, we don't usually like this Jesus, but did you hear what he just said? If you obey the law and you teach people to obey the law, you're great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's me. I teach that all the time, and I obey all the laws way better than the rest of these people. So he's talking about us. Jesus is calling us great. Thanks, Jesus. And then Jesus in verse 20 says, but I warn you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Pharisees are like, well, drat. He says their righteousness is insufficient to get into the kingdom of heaven. What they're having, what they're doing, it does not produce the qualifications necessary to become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This would have been shocking and offensive to the Pharisees. would have been shocking to everybody else there. It's not a Pharisee because they're listening and learning from these people. And if all of a sudden these guys aren't righteous, 
If their righteousness is not enough, if I need a righteousness that's better than that, how in the world am I going to get that? They've spent their entire lives working for this. How can I possibly catch up and exceed their righteousness? And the short answer is you can't. Nobody can. Jesus is saying all of this to point to himself as the fulfiller of the law, the one who will, the one who is perfectly righteous and who will fulfill all the requirements of the law. So he's being very clear. The Pharisees and, and the scribes and other teachers of the law, their righteousness falls short. It is insufficient. It's faulty. It's not good enough. Now, here's what Jesus is correcting. This tells us Jesus is not going after the Old Testament. What he's doing is he's going after faulty interpretations or bad teaching about the Old Testament. The Old Testament and teaching about the Old Testament, not the same thing, right? This is the Bible. I'm teaching about the Bible. It's not the same thing. Same thing with the Pharisees. They are teaching, they're interpreting the law in a certain way and assuming that's going to give them the righteousness that gets them into heaven. And Jesus says, your interpretations are flawed and they're insufficient to get you what you need to get into heaven. So what is the, I guess, what's the, what's at the heart of their interpretations that is, that is faulty? And um, for those of you who like notes, uh, you can write this down. Jesus is challenging faulty interpretations of the Old Testament law, not the law itself. That's the James official statement there. Um, you know, if I could make it in a nutshell, what is it that they're teaching across these six statements that is, that is insufficient? Well, essentially they're teaching a priority on obeying the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. And if you go back, if you want to do this, you can. Um, you can read the Mishnah and some other writings uh, of the Hebrew oral, tra uh, oral traditions and commentaries on the law that are all about keeping the letter of the law and unfortunately miss some of the spirit of the law behind it. Um, here's, here's the difference. This, the letter of the law is the law as written and nothing but. Just the words on the paper. Obey the words on the paper and you're good. So in this case, the letter of the law, you shall not murder. Just don't kill anybody and your righteousness is good. You're good with God <clears throat> as it relates to the sixth commandment as long as you don't actually kill anybody. Same with adultery. As long as you don't commit adultery, just don't do the bad thing, and you're fine. That's letter of the law. Spirit of the law points essentially to something beyond the law itself. It points to a moral principle that is informing the written law. In other words, there's an original moral principle that often has a, a broader or a more wide-ranging application than a literal reading of the law. Let me give you an example to explain what I'm talking about. Um, my brother is two years younger than me and we grew up doing everything together because we were so close in age so we were pretty much best friends and when you spend that much time together you get in a lot of fights anybody have siblings in here you fight a lot with your siblings I mean not anymore right we're, we're all grown ups and we're better and perfect now but like back then it was always their fault it was never my fault it was always my brother's fault he was always doing something I tell you um so we would get on each other's nerves and, you know, just start a shouting match, right? And I would think of all sorts of really great creative things to call my brother. And he would do the same thing to me, and we would be shouting at each other in the basement or something. And eventually my mom would hear, my mom is here, so she can correct me if I'm wrong, call me out if I'm lying, which I'm not. Um, <laughs> so she would basically get in between us somehow and be like, stop yelling at each other. If you keep yelling, you will be punished. And she would say whatever the punishment was. You know, you're getting grounded, you're losing your video game privileges, no more TV, no friends, whatever. 
if you keep yelling, you will be punished. So she, she revealed the law, and then she told us what was going to happen. She told us the judgment if we failed to uphold the law. So no more yelling. If you yell, you're going to get grounded. So I was not happy with her settling things that way because I didn't get to show my brother what I really felt about him. And she cut me short of getting the justice that I really wanted. So we went our separate ways for a while. And then, like, I would sneak up on him and just, like, punch him in the back of the head or something. And then he would start yelling, which is against the law, right? But my mom wouldn't point at him and be like, stop yelling, you're grounded. She would look at me for some reason and be like, you're grounded. Go to your room. And I'm over here like, don't you know the difference between yelling and punching someone in the back of the head? I mean, I punched him and he yelled, why isn't he grounded? He broke the rule. And I'm like yelling this to the, the walls of my bedroom, like the walls of my bedroom tear, you know. And she's probably downstairs just like, you know, laughing. Because now I have kids and when they do that, I laugh too. So now I understand. Um, but you see what I was doing, right? I'm, I'm trying to find a loophole in what she's saying so I can get what I think I need, which is just to make my brother feel worse. So I tried to find a loophole in the letter of the law, which is don't yell, rather than obeying the spirit of the law that informed the letter. Here's the spirit of the law. In this house, we live in unity, we live at peace with one another, and we love one another. And when you yell at each other and cuss each other out, you are not abiding by the moral principle of this household. That's the spirit of the law. Whether I was yelling at him or punching him in the back of the head, I was violating the spirit of the law. And interestingly enough, it carried the same penalty. She said, don't yell or you'll be grounded. I punched him in the back of the head. I was still grounded. Violating the spirit of the law carried the exact same penalty whether I was just violating the letter of the law or whether I thought I'd found a loophole to help me get around it. I was still under the same judgment for doing that. So here's where the, the righteousness of the Pharisees is falling short. They're teaching, if you obey the letter of the law, then you will be right with God. And I don't have time to go into the minutia here. You can check your study guide if you would like to. Um, but there's a lot of laws. I mean, even just, just off the top of my head um, for the Sabbath, there are 39 different categories in the Mishnah of work that you cannot do on the Sabbath. And there are innumerable examples of that kind of work. For example, um, they, were, they, they wanted so much to honor God in, in obeying and honoring the Sabbath. What they, what they would do is try to avoid any work at all. Because they would go to rabbi and say, hey, you know, how can I honor the Sabbath? They would say, well, the Lord rested on the seventh day. And you honor the Sabbath by resting. Okay, cool. Define rest for me. Can I work a little bit? Can I do a chore I forgot to do yesterday? You know, how if I want a Sabbath at my buddy's house. Can I walk six miles to his house? Because that's working out my quads. And if I work out my quads, does it count as work? And I'm not even kidding. Like, rules for how far you're allowed to work on the Sabbath are in the Mishnah. The kind of wick you're allowed to use in your lantern because certain wicks required more preparation. And if you worked a little bit too much, you were violating the letter of the law. So there's all this minutia that, that um, teaches the law created over hundreds of years to define the letter of the law. And they tried to obey basically all these lines, all these lines in the sand and say, well, don't cross this line, don't cross this line. And as long as you don't do the bad thing, you don't cross the lines, you're right with God. And what Jesus is about to show them is that they misunderstand what sin really is. 
Jesus is going to correct teachings that say sin is an action. Avoid the bad action and you'll be right with God. That's following the letter of the law. Don't do the thing and you're right. What Jesus is going to show us is sin is a heart condition. And even if you avoid the evil action, you can still be guilty of the heart attitudes behind it. And if you are guilty of the heart attitudes behind it, you are under the same judgment as if you had broken the letter of the law and you are not right with God. In essence, he's saying you need to follow the spirit of the law, but let me show you why you can't. So let's dig in and see what Jesus is saying here. Matthew 5, verse 21. He starts with murder, which is just a great place to start. He says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. So I'm going to stop right there. Um, is it wrong to murder? Of course it is. Yes. Lots of reasons why. Um, one reason is you're taking a life that's not yours to take. Um, it's not your property. You don't get to do with other people as you please. That's one reason why murder is so bad. Let me give you another biblical reason why murder is so bad. And again, you can dig into your, your study guide if you want more specific stuff on this. But Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. God says, if anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his image. When you kill someone, when you murder someone in cold blood, you are literally defacing the image of God in an individual. Romans 1.20 says that all of creation reveals things about God. You can see his eternal power and his divine nature through the testimony of creation. Now, in all of his creation, there is only one kind of being that's made in the image of God, and that is mankind. So, if Paul says you can learn something about God, something about the creator, from looking at a leaf or a tree or a mountain or a lion, then how much more could you learn from a creation that is made in God's very image? How much more of God's glory could be revealed by a creation that is made, in a sense, like God? I would argue a lot more. Its creation is good and reveals God, but somebody made in God's image could, can reveal God's glory in a wholly different way. And when you murder, you are defacing the image of God in that person. Murder is so bad because the murderer devalues and defaces the image of God in one of God's most treasured creations through whom he desires to display his glory in the world and for whom Jesus would offer his own life as a ransom payment. That is why murder is so abhorrent. Jesus continues. Our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus says, 
yeah, you shouldn't murder. But if you're angry with somebody, you are under the same judgment. You are guilty of committing murder. And I'm like, how? How am I guilty of murdering somebody if I've never actually laid, you know, taken my hand and, 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 and hurt them or harmed them or killed them? How could I possibly be guilty of murder? Jesus says if you're angry with someone, you're guilty of murder. Uh, the Greek root word here is orgizo. It means to make angry. But uh, Strong's uh, brings out an important definition here. This word carries a connotation on um, focusing on punishing the offender rather than the moral content of the offense. In other words, it's not good enough for you to pay the debt you owe me because you sinned against me. I see your sin and you as the same thing. You, I have now turned you into an object for my wrath, my anger, and I'm going to use you to feel some kind of way. If somebody sins against you and they pay the debt off, and at the end of the day, you can look them in the eye and say, thank you. The debt's been paid. We're reconciled. You know, let's continue. Let's continue in brotherly or sisterly love. If you can say at the end of the day, then you have, you may have been frustrated, but I would argue you were more frustrated at the actual sin than you were at the sinner. But when you view somebody as their sin only, what comes out of you is, it's not good enough for them just to pay the debt. I'm gonna make them pay more. I'm gonna make them suffer emotionally because I'm gonna call them all kinds of names and make them believe that they're true and assassinate their confidence and go tell all my buddies about how crazy this person was and how irresponsible they were, and I'm gonna assassinate their character. And when you, when you do that, it's simply revealing that you have turned this person who is made in the image of God, you've turned them in your own heart into an object for your wrath, for your rage, and you're not viewing them and valuing them like somebody that Jesus would die for and somebody who carries God's very image in them. So Jesus says, if you are angry, if you turn someone into an object for your wrath, you are guilty of murdering that person in your heart. Next one, he says, if you call someone an idiot, and uh, the, the word, for some of the Bibles that you might have, it says, if you say to someone, raka, this is an Aramaic word that means, um, well, it, it, it's a term of utter vilification, and it means you worthless one. You have no worth. Now, this is not the kind of thing that you walk around saying to somebody like, hey, rock a buddy, back off. That's not that kind of thing. This is a heart attitude. When you can look at someone and see right through them and not see the worth. This is, you see how this is connected to anger. When you've devalued someone and turned them into an object for your, for your rage, you're devaluing them, saying, you have no worth except to me as somebody, as something even that I can get mad at. I don't see the image of God in you. I don't see or care that Jesus died for you. You are worthless. You have no worth. The world would be better off if you never even existed. That kind of heart attitude that comes out in our actions when we say things like that, like it would be better if you never existed or you are just worthless. You have that kind of heart attitude. You have murdered that person in your heart. If you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Uh, the curse, curse word, the curse word. I'm going to say a curse word in church. Great. 
The word for curse, which would be the better way to say it, is moros. This is where we get our English word for moron. So if you know how to say moron, congratulations, you know a Greek word today. You know at least one Greek word. Um, one definition is actually pretty similar to the way that, the way that, we, view, the way that we think about moron. Um, it's stupid. You're dull. You are not sharp, literally, in the Greek. When you call somebody this, you say it to their face. Tim Keller says this. The reason you call somebody moros is because you want them to believe you. You want to make a statement against that person's value, and you want them to take that to heart and truly believe it. You want them to believe that they are worthless. You want them to feel and experience all the whatever that they caused you when they backed into your car, whatever the sin was. So if you say this to somebody, it's because you want them to believe it, because you want them to believe that they are somehow less than you are. Guilty of murder also. There's a second definition, though, that is, that is seen in the context here in the Greek. Moros can also mean godless fool, meaning your curse is essentially a judgment also over somebody standing with God. And this looks like this. That person must not be right with God. Somebody who is a Christian would never vote fill in the blank, right? Somebody who is a Christian would never struggle with fill in the blank. Therefore, because I see this action, they must not be right with God. And essentially what you're doing is you're pronouncing eternal judgment on them, which is not really yours to pronounce. And to be quite honest, you could be totally wrong. Because just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we are all of a sudden perfect. We bring in a lot of worldly thinking in our relationship with Christ. And part of walking with Jesus, part of being a disciple is surrendering and allowing God to live through us and produce growth in our life that looks more like him, to change our heart so our actions change to be more like him, which automatically implies that we're not gonna be perfect and we're still gonna struggle with stuff. But there is a thing that we can do, that we Christians can do, where we, in our heart, whether you ever say it out loud or not, can make a judgment upon somebody else's eternal value or eternal position with the Lord. And Jesus says, if you do that, you've murdered your brother or sister, and you're guilty of judgment. You're guilty just as if you had struck that person down. Jesus is showing us this is a heart issue. Sure, it's great not to kill somebody. I mean, that's like the lowest bar ever. Don't do that, obviously. But he's saying a lack of murder is not an excuse for hatred in your heart towards somebody else made in God's image. Um, I love what D.A. Carson says here. So it's the next point in, on the screen here. The root of murder is anger, and anger is murderous in principle. And here's, here's the thing that, that really got me. One has not conformed to the better righteousness of the kingdom by simply refraining from homicide. The, the picture I get in my mind, one has not conformed to the better righteousness of the kingdom simply by refraining from homicide. I think about it the other way around. If that statement was, it was, was false and you could conform but to the better righteousness of the kingdom simply by refraining from homicide, if that was possible, here's what that would look like. It would look like the kingdom of God where nobody gets murdered. That's great. I, I believe in the real actual kingdom of God, nobody is getting murdered, okay? We're all gonna live in unity and peace and all that kind of stuff. That's fantastic. But if just 
refraining from homicide is the bar, that means that in the kingdom we can walk around and be as mad at each other as we want. And I can just, I'm just gonna, just gonna throw a name out here. I can be as mad at Wes Schaefer as I want. Kate's cheering. Okay, I don't know what that was. <laughs> no. I can be as mad at you as I want, and I can stew in my heart for whatever you did or didn't do, and I can be bitter, and I can be resentful, and I can wish judgment on you, but I won't strike you down, but I'll live as though I wish you were gone. Is that the kingdom of God? No. That's what we have now, just without actual murder. That's not what I want to live in eternally. That's not the kingdom that we get to look forward to. So you don't conform to the better righteousness of the kingdom just because you didn't kill somebody. If you are angry with someone in any of the ways and more, because Jesus is not just saying, well, you just need to memorize these few new laws, right? Because he's not coming to add laws. He's simply revealing the scope of the spirit of the law behind what was written in thou shalt not murder. And he's showing that we all, show, that we all fall short of this. Uh, I, love, I love this um, this, this quote in First John chapter 3. I love the letters of John because you can see, you go back in the book of John and you go back in the, in the gospels and you're like, okay, the guy writing these letters actually was with Jesus and he heard these teachings and, and this affected him so much that it just kind of bleeds out of him as he's writing. So John writing later after Jesus has ascended to heaven, he says this, he says, anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, 1 John 3, 15, 16, he says, you know murderers don't have eternal life with them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. John just expertly and eloquently reveals the moral principle, God's standard behind the sixth commandment. Murder, anger, devaluing life, dehumanizing someone, turning them into an object. These things are so evil because they are a failure to love. Love is the principle. Love is the law of the kingdom. What does Jesus say when the Pharisees are trying to trap him? And they're like, hey, what's the greatest commandment? He's gonna say one and then we're gonna counter with something else. What does Jesus say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do these two things, you will meet all of the demands of the law and the prophets. In other words, if you truly love God with every fiber of your being and you love your neighbor as yourself, you would never want to be so angry with somebody that you devalue them, that you put yourself above them, that you murder them in your heart. That's why anger is a violation of this commandment because it's a violation of the law of the kingdom, which is love. The opposite of avoiding murder isn't just don't murder. The opposite of taking life isn't don't take life. The opposite of taking life is giving life or giving your life for it. That's what love does. It doesn't take life, it gives life. So let's move on to the next section. Jesus, I mean, he just, he just shows us how short we fall. And I even had a moment with, with the Raqqa thing because um, uh, I was listening to Tim Keller's sermon on it and he even says, you know, Raqqa can be, you know, viewing someone as worthless, that even can look like indifference. And if I'm being completely honest, I'm not di different to everybody. Indifferent, is that the opposite of different? Whatever. Um, 
I, I still have the capacity in my heart to be indifferent to people. And I don't want to be that way anymore. I don't like that. I do it less than I used to, but like I still recognize a kernel of indifference in me sometimes. And I recognize that I fall short of God's standard here. And I'm not satisfied with that. And I want Jesus to help me grow in that. So we'll, we'll get to a conclusion there in a second. But let's move on to the next section. Um, Jesus discusses the seriousness of anger and, and he actually says, well, if this is how you fall short on anger, here's, here's a way that, you, that kingdom people can deal with anger once it's happened. This is verse 23 and 24. He says, if, you are sacri- or if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. This is how the law of love operates. You recognize you've committed a sin against somebody else. That thing is so serious, it must be dealt with immediately. So Jesus is, Jesus is saying, even if, you're, even if you're at the temple, and for, for first century Jews, you would offer sacrifices at the altar in the temple. Um, you would go to the temple and offer sacrifices for lots of things. But it required a sacrifice. It required time, effort, resources, preparation to get that ready. Jesus says, you've done all that work and you're taking a sacrifice to the altar and you remember that you sinned against your brother. That brother has something against you. You sinned against them. You put that thing down and you go be reconciled to your brother and then you can come back and I will receive your worship and I will receive your sacrifice. That's how serious this is. When you sin against somebody else and you remember the law of love says, I will go and deal with that. I will go and, and apologize and ask for forgiveness and attempt to reconcile with my brother, attempt to bring peace and unity between me and my brother or sister who I'm at odds with. See, if you commit a sin against somebody and you ignore it willfully, you're showing that love for them really isn't in you. You're showing you love yourself, your comfortability, your righteous indignation, your sense of superiority, whatever it is, more than them. You're treating someone as less than, and then once again, you find yourself guilty of murder and a lack of love. So this is a pathway by which when I remember that I've sinned against somebody, I need to go deal, but you might be like, well, James, what about Matthew 18? Because Jesus says in Matthew 18, if you've been offended, then you have to go to that person. So Matthew 5 says, if you're the offender, you go. And 18 says, if you're the offended, you go. Who moves first? And the answer is, whoever remembers that there is a lack of peace between them and their brother, that's the person that goes first. As soon as you know. Whether you're the offender or you're the offended, if there is a, if there's a rift between you and your brother, you go and you deal with it. That's how the law of love operates when there's a sin, whether you did it or not. You go to that person and you attempt to reconcile. As much as it is in your power to do so, live at peace with everyone, says Paul in Romans 12, 18. Let's move to the next, move to the next thing. Um, when you're on your way to court with your adversary, verse 25, settle your differences quickly, otherwise your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown in prison. And if that happens, you surely will not be free again until you've paid the last penny. This section to me reads a whole lot more urgent than the last one. Does it read pretty urgent to you? 
yeah, um, I saw some heads nod. Yeah, it just seems really urgent to me. Like, yeah, I got to lay down a sacrifice and go reconcile with my brother. But here, basically, Jesus is reminding me, I have limited time to reconcile with my brother. He says, I'm already on the way to court. My brother has accused me of a sin. We are on the way to court. A third party is going to get involved. And once that third party gets involved, the situation is now going to be out of both of our hands. And I will be liable to be judged for exactly what I did to my brother. So while I still have time, I ought to reconcile with my brother. So this, it builds off of the last section in reinforcing how important reconciliation is, how important pursuing unity and peace and love with a brother or a sister where there's a rift, how important that is. It's so important. But there's a deeper message here in this one. See, every single one of us, we are all on a long, slow walk towards the courthouse with Jesus, who we've actually offended. Our sin at the heart is not simply a sin against another human being. It's a sin against God. David messes up with Bathsheba. He gets his friend murdered to cover it up. He sinned against at least two people in that situation. And what does he say? He says, God, against you and you only have I sinned. Is he ignoring the damage he did to other people? No. He's saying, I recognize at at the core, my sin is an offense against God and his good way and his righteousness. And every single one of us who are sinners, which by the way is everybody here, every one of us is essentially on a slow walk towards the courthouse where we will be held accountable for what we did, for the sin that was in our heart, whether it worked its way out of us or not. So while you have time, reconcile with the one whom you are walking to court with. In this case, reconcile with Jesus while you still have time. Here's the really, really good news. You know, you look at this anger stuff and you're like, gosh, man, I just, I fall short of of so many of these things. And I have fallen short in the past. Even if I don't struggle with it now, I've certainly fallen short of this in the past. How can I possibly, if, if the wages of sin is death and I've sinned a whole bunch of times and the condition of my heart is sinful, how can I possibly reconcile with Jesus Christ who is absolutely perfect? And the short answer to that question is you can't. There's nothing you can do to make that up to Jesus. Here's the good news. Jesus can, and Jesus did. He has already purchased reconciliation for every single person when he went to the cross and the sin of the world was laid upon his shoulders and he put it to death. He went to the Father and he said, will my death will that cover the payment for everyone's sin? And God said, yes. And evidence and proof of that is that Jesus then rose from the dead. That's the receipt. The resurrection is proof that sin and death have been defeated and that my sin and your sin is paid for. So when you're on the long walk with Jesus, you actually can reconcile, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus already did, what he already finished. But if you're under the sound of my voice and you recognize I'm not right with God today, I have never believed in Jesus, I've never repented of my sins, 
Your soul is in peril, friend. And I'm not saying this, I'm not, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to exaggerate this, but I want you to understand, tomorrow is not promised. While you're on the road, get right, reconcile with God, and you can do that today. Let's shift gears here and talk about adultery. We got murder and we got adultery. Boy, it's a real one-two punch in church today. Jesus says, verse 27, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Why is adultery so bad? Well, adultery was understood, if you're doing a letter of the law interpretation, as having physical sexual relations with anyone other than your spouse, anyone that you are not in marital covenant with. That's as far as I'm going to go on the explicit stuff today. Um, But Jesus, in the same way that he deals with anger, he's going to deal with adultery. It's not just an action. It's not just doing the thing. It's a heart condition that makes you think about and want to do that. But why is, why is adultery so bad? Um, let, me, let me illustrate it this way. If anger is defacing the image of God in a person who was designed to reveal God's glory, adultery is, def- is the defacing of a relationship that was designed to reveal God's glory. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 say, As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way that Christ and the church are one. There is a reason for the way God designed marriage. And it's not only to have, you know, a father and a mother in the house raising kids, and it's not only for some other reasons that I won't say, but you can check out in your study guide because I don't have time. Um, one of the reasons God designed marriage this way is because it reveals what our relationship with Jesus is like. It's a visible illustration of two vastly different beings being united as one. The glorious and mysterious union of a man and a woman, two vastly different beings, was designed to reveal the glorious and mysterious union of man with Christ. Two vastly different beings. I am really different than Jesus. I am finite. I am a sinner. Jesus is infinite. He is perfect. We are very, very different. But the Bible says that when I believe and I repent and I enter the kingdom of heaven, his spirit comes and lives in me and is fused with my spirit. We are united, not in a physical union like with marriage, but in a spiritual union. But marriage is a really visible illustration of how two vastly different beings become united in one through a covenant. So it shows us what our relationship with Christ is like. And when you commit adultery, you not only cause division and strife and suspicion and chaos and hurt kids and hurt each other, that kind of stuff, although that happens, one of the other things you do is you deface this glorious and mysterious relationship that God designed to reveal his glory. So that's why adultery is so evil. Again, Jesus makes it a hard issue. Verse 28, I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in its heart. 
two words here that are super important um, that I'm going to do the, the Greek word study on, more in your study guide, of course. Um, looks, the word there, the tense of the word means looks and keeps on looking. So it's not just like, you know, you literally see somebody and then you keep on walking. This is I see somebody and I am enticed and I'm going to continue looking. I'm going to let my mind do some things. Whether that ever leads to a physical act or not. If you look and you keep on looking at a woman with lust, with lust is important. Lust, um, and I missed this in my notes and I forgot to add it in there in, the, in, the, uh, in between services. But um, so I'm going to try to make sure I get the definition right here from my brain. Um, the Greek word for lust is epithumeo. Comes from two Greek words. Epi means to set upon, and thumeo is from the root word thumos, which means passion. So lust is to set my passion upon, to greatly desire, to set my heart on something that I want. So if you look and keep on looking with a heart that says, I want that, and I will do what I need to get it, even if I just imagine it, guess what? You've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus makes it a heart issue. You're guilty of adultery. Why? Because you want it to happen. You're imagining it. You're thinking about it. You're imagining breaking your own marital covenant if you're in one, someone else's marital covenant if they have one, enjoying something that was designed to only be enjoyed inside of a marital covenant, ignoring God's purpose and design for marriage. And here's the, I don't know if this is the worst part. It just seems, it seems so rotten to me. It's hoping that the other party would lust after you to the point where they would join you in sin. That's what happens when you imagine this stuff, even if you don't go as far as acting out. When you imagine that, you are imagining that person sinning with you, and that is just rotten and sinful to the core. And Jesus says, that is just as guilty of adultery as actually doing the thing, as actually breaking the letter of the law. And again, What's the law of the kingdom? What's the spirit of the law that's been broken with adultery? Love, unity, peace. I should, I, should love, I should love my brother and sister enough to say, I will never do anything that will rob me or you of peace, cause strife in your household, bring strife into my household and suspicion and a lack of trust. Love says, I will not even get close to that line. Sin says, Here's what sin does. Sin says, well, where are the lines? Exactly how far can I go before I commit adultery? Show me where the lines are, and I'll just sidle right up to the line as close as I can possibly get, and as long as I don't cross it, I'm fine. But that kind of attitude always crosses the line. And even if it doesn't cross it physically, it crosses the line in your heart. And Jesus is trying to show us, you're violating the spirit of the law, and you're still guilty, even if you never actually do the evil thing. So how do you deal with this? Well, Jesus has some interesting advice. He says, if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. Yikes. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to throw it into hell. Um, in the interest of time, I'm just going to go through this really quick. If Jesus, is Jesus advocating self-mutilation to avoid adultery? No. Lots of thoughts on this in your study guide, but here's the real quick answer. Because my sin in my eyes are not what caused me to sin. Jesus says, if it's causing you to sin, cut it off. 
but my eyes and my hands are directed by my heart. My heart is what causes me to sin. Our hearts are infected. That's what causes sinful actions. Not my hand, not my eyes. I can lust after somebody perfectly without both my hands and either of my eyes. That's not gonna fix my heart. So Jesus isn't saying you need to mutilate yourself. A well-known early church father actually did this. He rolled on briars for a while, trying to hurt himself enough to not think about it. And then when he kept thinking about it, he cut some things off. And later on in life, decided maybe I misunderstood what Jesus was saying because he actually did it and he recognized it didn't fix his heart. It's a heart issue. So what then is Jesus saying? Here's a a few solid quotes from some of my resources. D.A. Carson says, cutting off or gouging out the offending part is a great way of saying Jesus' disciples must deal radically with sin. Um, Aiken says, Act decisively and immediately, even if it must be painful. In other words, okay, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna, and again, not advocating this, this is not recommended. If I'm gonna cut off my hand to try to stop me from sinning, if that would actually make me right with God, which it won't, remember, heart issue, but if, if cutting off my hand is actually gonna make me right with God and I decide I'm gonna do it because it's that important for me to be right with God, I, I don't take that lightly. If I'm doing it, I'm doing it with intention and I'm doing it, I'm acting decisively and I'm taking it very seriously. In a similar way, to deal with sin requires that same level of decisiveness and intentionality in dealing with your sin and cutting off those parts, not physical, but parts of your heart that are sinful you must deal with them with the same intentionality and decisiveness as you would if you were cutting off your hand. Does that make sense? But here's the problem. My heart is sinful. I can't fix it. Jesus is not only showing us here, well, here's how you deal with it. He's showing us you're already, you are already hopelessly flawed. You are already broken. You're already guilty. And no matter what you do in your own power, you cannot achieve a perfectly righteous standard anymore. The kingdom of heaven is off limits for you because you fall short of the standard. We're already guilty of breaking the commandment. That is so depressing if that's it. If that's where this whole thing ends, then we just get to go home depressed and feel bad. But here's where the good news comes in. Jesus is not only trying to show us that, that, uh, how easy it is for us to fall short and how we've already fallen short. One of the things he's also trying to show us is that someone with a perfect righteousness, the kind that God finds acceptable, doesn't exhibit these behaviors in the first place. And in doing that, He's pointing an arrow to himself. So here's the last point in your notes. I actually got a little bit ahead of myself. I apologize. Sin and righteousness are heart issues. Our actions simply reveal what's already in our heart. Jesus didn't come to fix your eyes or your hand. He came to fix your heart. 
But Jesus, if my actions simply reveal what's in my heart, my actions are showing there is already sin in there. And if I've already fallen short on the standard, how in the world is it possible for me to live like this? How can I live like this if I've already broken the law so much that it's almost automatic to me? How can I be righteous enough in my own power to enter the kingdom? And the simple answer is, you can't. It's not possible. We don't have enough perfect lives to pay the price for all of our sin. Okay, then who then is fit for the kingdom? Only one whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Only one who has lived their entire lives following the spirit of the law, the moral principles behind everything that was written in the law. Only somebody who lived that perfectly is fit for and worthy of the kingdom. One who is already perfectly righteousness, who is righteous not just outwardly but inwardly. But if that's the only person that's fit for the kingdom, then here's the realization you come to. I am not worthy of the kingdom. And as soon as you come to understand that bad news, you're ready to receive the good news. Because Jesus doesn't just leave you there saying, how, how gross am I? How, you know, a chief of sinners, how wretched am I? He doesn't leave us there. In fact, Jesus says, when you come to this realization, you are blessed. Matthew 5, verse 3, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You're blessed when you recognize and come to grips with the depths of your own sinful heart. You're blessed when you recognize the helpless state you're in. You're blessed when you acknowledge and agree with your own inability to measure up to the perfect standard that God requires. Why are you blessed then? Well, when you really come to understand that, it causes a deep grief and a mourning in your heart. I've been there. And when, when that grief and mourning well up in your heart, it creates a dissatisfaction. It says, I am hopelessly flawed, and I know I've fallen short of the standard, and I understand that I am, I am under rightful judgment for all the sin I've committed but I don't want to be. Jesus in verse five says, blessed are the meek. You are blessed when that understanding of how lost you are and that mourning, grief, and dissatisfaction brings a humility in your heart that says, I cannot enter on my own merit. God must have mercy on me. And when that points you to Jesus Christ, you are blessed. And you say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And like I already shared, mercy is waiting because the work is already done. Jesus went to the cross and he died a death he didn't deserve. Why did he do that? What sin was he paying the price for when he died? He's paying mine. He's paying yours. Um, I think it's in Second Peter. Peter, it's first or second Peter. Peter says that the sin of the world was laying on his shoulders on the cross. And when he died, he put it to death. And so earlier when I said that reconciliation is possible, not through what we can do, but because Jesus already did it, it's being completely honest with you. And when you recognize that need for him in your heart, he is already waiting for you with open arms, and he's already purchased 
that reconciliation for you. You can be made right with God, right where you are today. And here's the best part. This all gets, it all comes back to the righteousness of God, right? The righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes, it wasn't good enough. You need a better righteousness to enter the kingdom. Well, if I don't have that righteousness, I need to get it from somebody who does. And when you are reconciled with Jesus and his spirit is fused with yours, the Bible uses the imagery that you are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ like a pure white robe. Jesus puts his righteousness on me and in me. And that righteousness begins to change my heart. And as my heart begins to change, my actions begin to change. I find that I can live with less anger and bitterness and resentment because I have Jesus in me. I find that I can live with less lust because Jesus is in me. I find that I can live, and there's four more statements we're going to get into in the coming weeks and innumerable things beyond. You start to find that you can start to live this way But the only way that you get that is by having the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you first. Worship team, you can come. There's two responses here that I want to draw our attention to today. First, for those of us who are Christians, who have been made right, and who have Christ's righteousness in us and on us, what do we do with this? You don't need to get saved again. That's not the point. Jesus has saved you. He is saving you. And his grace is stronger than sin. So what do we do with this? If the Lord has put a spotlight on part of your heart today, and you recognize an area where you fall short of God's standard, You don't have to try harder. You don't have to try to discipline your outward actions to try and enact some kind of change because that's not how it works. You gotta change inside first for your actions to change. So what do you do if you find yourself today saying, I struggle with lust, I struggle with anger, I struggle with indifference, I struggle with turning people into objects so that I can get something out of them? What do you do? confess that to Jesus, you admit and you say, Jesus, I surrender. You repent of that. You let that create such a dissatisfaction and it, you, you let it basically make you sick with the fact that you are that sinful and you let that turn you into repentance and say, Jesus, I don't, I recognize that I still struggle with sin. Even though your righteousness is in there, my sinful nature is in there and I recognize I still struggle with this I surrender. Help me to walk according to your ways and not according to my flesh. Produce in me the fruit that looks like you. Change my heart so that I live by the law of love, not according to my flesh. That's how we respond to this as Christians. Did God put a spotlight on something in your heart today? Don't leave here without confessing that to the Lord without surrendering and allowing him to start working on that part of your heart. Here's the second response. If you're here today and you recognize that you are not right with God and when you heard me speaking about about judgment and about sin and that kind of stuff, it stirred something in your heart and it also stirred a dissatisfaction to say, 
I recognize I'm not right with God and I am not satisfied with that anymore. I want to be right with God. I want to be able to live the way that Jesus was saying to live. I want to be able to live loving and in unity and peace with other people. I don't want to have anger and lust and sin in my heart. Here's how you respond. By receiving what has already been made available to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I'll bow our heads and close our eyes. If you want to be right with God today, you can pray a prayer that's very simple. What do you need to do? You need to admit that you're a sinner. You need to admit that sin is in your heart and that you have broken God's laws, letter of the law and spirit of the law. But then you also need to believe in Jesus. Believe that he is who he says he is. Believe as simply as this, that he can save you because he went to the cross for you and because he's alive. And also believe that if you ask him to save you, that he will. So you need to believe and you need to repent. Repent means to turn away from your sin and to turn towards Jesus. So if that's you today, you can pray a prayer in your heart right now. You can simply ask Jesus to save you. And if you want a little more direction, you can say something as simple as this, Jesus, I am a sinner. And I admit that. But I've heard that you can save me and I believe that you will. So please save me. Please save me. Please change my heart. Please make me new. Please give me your righteousness. Help me to live the way you live. Be my Lord. I get off the throne of my life and I let you sit in it and I will listen and follow you. You can pray a prayer as simple as that and if you pray that prayer and you mean it, then you are saved. Then God is forgiving you. He's fusing his spirit with yours and he's giving you his righteousness. So if you prayed that prayer today, I just want to ask one small favor. This is not something you need to do to be saved. If you prayed that prayer and you meant that you are already saved, I just want to be able to celebrate with you that you made that decision if you did. So I'm going to count to three. And if you made that decision for the first time today, I would love it if you would just lift up your hand, make eye contact with me, and then you can put it right back down. This is simply a way that I can acknowledge that you've come into the kingdom today, and it'll give me an opportunity to, to give you a Bible at the end of uh, service today to help you get started on your walk with Christ. So if that's you and you made that decision for the first time today, on the count of three, just lift up your hand, make eye contact with me, and you can put it right back down. One, two, three. Anybody come into the kingdom this morning? Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, help us to be more like you. Help us to not be satisfied with any, even just the tiniest little shred of sin in our lives. Help grow us, Holy Spirit. Produce that fruit in our lives that looks like you, that looks like gentleness and patience and kindness. It looks like peace and unity and love. Produce that in us, Lord, so that we can be, so that we can be even greater examples of who you are to a world that desperately needs 
your salvation. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, all eyes open and all heads up. We're going to close with one final song. Our prayer team is coming. Um, if you would like prayer for anything, please come and see one of our uh, prayer team members. It can be something that God put on your heart today and you want to simply voice it to somebody else and have them praying along with you for that. You can share that with them. It can even be something completely unrelated to what we've talked about today. For any reason, if you would like prayer, please come see. Uh, please come see Suba and Wes this morning. Our welcome team is also coming and they're going to uh, prepare to receive our morning's tithes and offerings. So if you're willing and able, why don't you stand up with us? I'm gonna pray over our offering this morning. The worship team is going to lead us in one final song and just give us another couple minutes to let whatever God is doing in your heart sink in and take purchase in your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for everything that you have done for us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for buying us back. Thank you for making us new and giving us your righteousness. Now we take this time to return to you our tithes and our offerings, to give thanks to you in this way for everything that you've done for us. With thankful and grateful hearts, we give this to you. We ask that you speed it so that your kingdom can go forth in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our communities, and in our world. In your name we pray, amen. Let's sing with the worship team as they lead, and then I'll come and close. This is my desire to Yeah.
this morning. Um, I want to let you know something exciting that we have going on next Sunday. It's a uh, fifth Sunday of the month, which is when we always invite our, our, our uh, young people, boys and girls, to come and join us in the 11 a.m. service so we can have a big family service together and worship the Lord together. All ages will be welcome. Join us. Uh, at 9 a.m. we'll have our, our normal service with a message on something. You'll have to see what it is. You'll have to come back to see what it is. And uh, but we'll have a message at 9 a.m. and uh, kind of a, a more familiar uh, worship service at 9. And then at 11, we'll have a kids' teaching with myself and Pastor Zach, which will be a blast. Uh, we'll get to interact with, uh, with our kids and uh, learn something alongside them about the fruit of the Spirit and how God grows, how he produces this growth in our lives once his Spirit and his righteousness are given to us. So I'm going to invite you to come back and join us. Uh, at either 9 or 11 or for both. Since there'll be different services, you are more than welcome to come and join us next week. And uh, of course, if you're interested in learning more about Echo Community Church, please sign up for Discovering Echo on your way out. There's a board next to the door. You can also sign up online or at echochurchonline.com. Let me pray over us this morning. Jesus, this song uh, is, is perfect, and I didn't plan it that way. <laughs> um, Jesus, this song is just perfect because it encapsulates... It encapsulates our desire to want to honor you, to want to be more like you, and to let you have your way in us. So today, Jesus, have your way in our hearts. Make us, mold us to be more like you. Help us to not simply discipline our actions, but to let you transform our heart and renew our mind so that we can look more and more like you through the work of your spirit in our lives. We thank you for everything you're doing in our heart today. We love you. In your wonderful name we pray, amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. We'll see you, see you soon. <laughs>